Hey, good morning, Mark. Good morning, Marcus. How are you? <laughs> so you you just you just got back from uh, from Germany, right? Back to New York City. Correct. I was in Germany. I woke up in Germany. Actually, I woke up in Germany two days ago, and then I, uh, after four uh, concerts at the Elf Philharmonie with John Zorn, and then I uh, flew to Geneva for one night, and I flew back to New York. Here, I almost missed my train in in Berlin. I mean, my uh, flight. I, I I've never missed a flight in my life, and I had to run so hard because all the trains were delayed. The trains going to the airport, something was going on. I don't know. <clears throat> yeah, what do you think about that that new airport we got here in Berlin? <laughs> I mean, I've I think it was the first time I flew in and out of there. I mm. I only really, you know, I only really walked the first time I walked through. The second time I literally ran through. So all I can say is that I'm glad it wasn't huge. If it had been Amsterdam or Frankfurt, I would have definitely missed my plane. But uh, yeah, I was. I was on the train platform in Berlin looking at the train time saying 15 minute delay, 25 minute delay, 35 minute delay. And and at some point I just said it's not going to happen and I ran to a taxi and I took a taxi and I told the driver to drive as fast as possible. And I got to the gate 3 minutes after the gate closing but they were still boarding so I made it. Very good. Yeah. yeah, I know that kind of situation very well. So, so Mark, Mark, it's 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 uh, kind of like wonderful to talk with you again because, like, the, you know, we go way back, like the uh, dark ages of the internet. Um, yeah, that's true. We go back to before the internet, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 not really. But it was like the the late nineties, I guess. Right. Yeah. I, I, I don't, I'm not even sure if you were still in Switzerland back then or in no, Italy no, no. Or, I left or whatever. I left Switzerland when I was eight years old, uh, but I lived in, uh, oh. in Italy at the time. I think when me, you and I first got in touch, I was living in Italy. Yeah. Which which part of Italy were you in? I was in Puglia, which is the heel of the boot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So you went from, from um, sort of like uh, a, a Swiss, but nor northern Italian uh Like what? What is your what? What are your roots? Like is your is your father Italian, your mother, or both? Or? No, my mother is Swiss, uh, and my father is Italian. So I actually don't have any Northern Italian. It's it's either Swiss from the German speaking part or Italian from the deep south of Italy. So oh, yeah, that's 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 a <laughs> that's a cool combination. <laughs> yeah. So um, so um, you are you, to me, you strike me as like one one of the, well, I don't want to say a few person, people, but it's not true, but one of the people who's really driven by music, like you have like such a, such a passion for music and also in, in all its forms, right. And also from, from like all angles, you as somebody who makes music, somebody who, you know, you used to run the, the chain DLK, DLK uh, review website. I still do. You still do. It's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the, you know, the end, and you've become uh, one of the most sought after uh, engineers for both live and studio work, which, which is, uh, which is incredible. And like, you know, like you're the kind of person I love because I, I feel like, um, I feel the same. Like for me, there is like this umbrella, which I have to say, it is music for me. Like, but anything that happens under that umbrella, I'm kind of interested in learning about it, in 
kind of like even like doing it myself in in getting better at it and because like i feel with with the arts in general i guess but in music in particular like the more you know about the process the the more you can enjoy it as well you know it Absolutely. unlike unlike you know unlike unlike some of the uh, prejudices that people have that if you know too much about something that you you will stop enjoying it i i think with music that's not the case so so tell us a little bit about your about your path so how how did how did everything start for you um it started back in italy uh which is where i was living in the 90s i was studying i studied i studied piano and then uh, I just became more and more interested in music and it kind of became the center of my, of my life. Uh, I listened to a lot of different things. Um, I had musician, a couple of friends that became musicians. Some became prominent musicians and we're still in touch to this day. Um, and then I, I was kind of, I was, I think I was around 16 when I was trying to figure out what to do with my life. And I didn't have a clear vision yet as to what to do with my life or in what direction to continue studying. And then a friend of mine, who I'm still friends with to this day, asked me if I knew anyone who wanted to buy his mixing console. And it was a very, it was a large scale, a large format console, like, you know, two and a half meters long, 32 channels, I think, or 24, I forget, analog console, inline console. I was like, well, I'm not going to know anyone who has space or the money for that console. But then at, at night, the kind of the the light bulb went on. I was like, maybe this is what I should be doing. So I bought the console and I built a recording studio in my parents' basement. And um, I went to his studio as an intern for a few months to learn the basics uh, of uh, recording and mixing. He was a he was my earliest mentor. His name is Nanni Suracha and he's a studio called Pure Rock in, down in Southern Italy. And that's how I started. I basically was recording at the time in the 90s in Italy it was mostly punk hardcore. That was a big scene, um, especially in down south. And so I recorded tons of punk hardcore bands. I cut my teeth on that. And uh, after about two or three, three, two or three years, it just because of what you said to me, I feel the same to me. Music is a big umbrella. And although back then the umbrella was not as big and as wide as it is now for me, it was still bigger than just punk hardcore. In fact, I was really, as you said, I was running that music magazine called Chain DLK, which I still run to this day. It's been more than 25 years. It started in 1994. Um, I, so my interests musically were actually more towards electronic and industrial music, but there was no electronic or industrial music being made down south, except for my band, which was called Memory Lab, uh, which we made a record with back then. Uh, and so I, you know, I just decided Southern Italy was, was, too, uh, was too narrow in views. There wasn't enough diversity in music. And so I packed up and went to New York. Initially, to be fully honest, not with the intention of staying. Initially, I just went to New York thinking, I'm going to go do an internship in a studio and learn to be a, big, a better engineer and then maybe move back to Italy or to Switzerland or to Northern Italy, you know, open a studio, we'll see. Hey, but New York me, blew my mind and I stayed. I, let me uh, get the timeline um, right here. So when you, when you got that, that first mixing desk that you bought, were you yes. still in your teens or were you already in your 20s? 
No, I was in my teens. I think I was 17, oh, I think. Really? Mm -hmm. um, I was 17. I was finishing up school. I was about to do um, my, the, at the time, mandatory uh, uh, military service, which I opted out of in, in favor of what they call civilian service, which is, you know, the non-weaponized non Pacific pacifist version of it. Um, so it was around that time. I was about 17 when I opened my first recording studio in my parents' basement. And then I ran it until I was about 20. And in 99, uh, I moved to New York for an internship. I still kept a studio in Italy because my intention was to go back. And I even attempted to sublet it to some musicians that had recording interest in becoming recording engineers that didn't really work out well. Um, but, uh, but I basically kept the studio for another few years. And with, uh, every time I would go back to New York, to uh, Italy from New York, I would do sessions and then go back to New York and continue my internship. Is, uh, is that, is that house in Italy still part, is that, does it still belong to your family? Yeah, that's my parents' home. But, uh, mm -hmm. of course the studio isn't there anymore. It's mm -hmm. not my, my, my mother's sewing room. She makes clothes. <laughs> Very good. So New York blew your mind, right? Um, oh, yeah. How, how can he not? It's the best city no, in the world. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I kind of agree. Like, for me, it's Berlin um, for some other reasons. But, um, you know, like this, this, this whole... Um, and, you know, like, especially in the... Uh, in the arts or like in the business world, in the greater sense, people do travel a lot, right? And people kind of like um, travel um, to where the opportunities are rather than waiting for opportunities to appear uh, wherever you're based. And somehow, I mean, you, you're, again, you're a prime example of that with, you know, the amount of traveling that, you, that you're doing, or I don't know how COVID times were for you, but uh, I think you, you must still have traveled during COVID times as well, right? Yeah, I never really stopped except for the first three or four months when the world was trying to figure out what was happening. Yeah, yeah. So, so what I'm interested in, like, so, so this, 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 uh, this, this feeling of like, like, like going somewhere, being blown away by New York City, like you already, like you, you made that, that one step going somewhere else and you're immediately like landing in that, in that place that is, sort of like your final destination not really but in terms of where you're based right and yeah. uh and and so what what was that like was that was that easy for you was that like did you ever ever even like think about what you were doing were there was there any part of your life where there was like anxiety involved in in being in a foreign country um in a big city like that having to earn a lot of money to afford you know to be able to live there and stuff like that Yeah. Well, actually, easy was not the word I would use at all. Those were the hardest time, hardest years of my life uh, in order to make it work financially uh, because I wasn't making any money. Uh, when you go to a, when you do an internship, you don't earn any money. And I did that for two years. So in those two years, I had to live off of savings. And the way I was doing that, this were the early years of the internet, like you said at the beginning of this podcast. So I had an interest in web design. I still, you know, have enough knowledge of web design that I can do all my web design, you know, all my website I designed myself, the Chain DLK website I designed myself. 
So I know enough, but at the time I knew enough to sell that as a service. So I was uh, being a web designer, which I could do from anywhere, uh, creating websites for companies and things like that. And I was doing sessions in my studio in Italy every time I went to back to Italy. And that's how I sustained myself throughout the first two years in New York. But the two years in New York were extremely hard because I had set myself, based on the savings I had, I decided I had to make it work with $500 a month, which is absolutely inconceivable by today's standards. But 20 years ago, or almost 25 now, it was possible with a lot of sacrifices. Those sacrifices meant that I rented a house that was far away from from the, the studio in a different state, actually, New Jersey. It also meant that, I, of course, I had roommates like everyone when, when you start out. But I was living in a shitty basement apartment that would flood every time it rained. So I actually had a I had an inflatable mattress that I slept on because that way when it did rain, the inflatable mattress would float. Uh, I'm talking like, you know, two centimeters of rain in the basement. It was like the most shitty and unhealthy thing, but that's all I could afford. And I, I wasn't, I was too, maybe too proud, you can say, to ask money to my parents. Uh, they had already helped me financially opening the studio uh, in their basement. So I wasn't gonna, I didn't wanna be a burden on them. So I never asked for money at home and I just made it work and it paid off. But interestingly, it was also, I mean, New York blew my mind on many levels, but it was also the first time people don't know this. It was the first time I ever got on a plane and it was the first time I ever went outside of Europe until then I had only been to, you know, within Europe, like things you can drive, like, you know, Switzerland, of course, but uh, so that was the first time I got on a plane and landed in the big city. Oh, that's, that's, that's wonderful, man. It's actually uh, giving me a little bit of goosebumps here. <laughs> so, so cool. <laughs> hey, and let, let yeah, me just go, was, go. If I think, no, I was going to say, if I think back on it, the fact it's so crazy, the things we do in our twenties, you know, if somebody told me now, okay, you, you know, I'm 45 now, if somebody told me to get on a space shuttle and go to another planet and live in a cave, because that's all I can afford, I don't know if I would do it, but when you're 20, you do it, you get on a plane, you know, you go to a city you've never been to that speaks a language that, you know, I only had basic English from school. And you just made it work. And actually, Chain DLK, the magazine, for those who were listening to the podcast and don't know what it is, it's a music website now. At the time, it was a paper uh, fanzine. Actually helped me a lot because I had so many contacts in, in experimental music, industrial, electronic, that when I first went to New York, I met this guy, and I'm ashamed to say I don't remember his name now, but he had a, a tape label. And we had been in touch for years. Um, and he actually picked me up at the airport and drove me to his house and let me sleep on his couch for about 10 days until I found my first apartment. And that was through contact with music. So, and this is a guy I never met before. We were pen friends. This was, you know, it was early days of it, of the internet. So we had started as actual pen friends and evolved into email friends, but never met before. So... 
Yeah, there has definitely been a connecting factor. Yeah. There, there are a lot of parallels between uh, you and I there, and and I think like it's it's not a surprise that I I found your website or like the the website for the for the fanzine, or the, you know, uh, yeah, in the mid nineties. Um, yeah, I think and, the first record I got from you was the Centro Zoom one, if I'm pronouncing it con- correctly. Yeah, that, and that was in two thousand. Actually, that so was, was that, that was two thousand. But but I'm pretty I'm like I'm pretty sure that, that we had been writing. What uh, project before. did you have before Centro? It, it was it was just a solo um, solo release um, that was called Taster, and an okay. album with Ian Bo- Ian Body that was in ninety nine. So really, for me, things things started. I had my first uh, solo release in ninety eight. 99 with Ian Body and then Central Zone in 2000 and Europa String Choir in 2000. That was the beginning of my career, basically. Okay. And, yeah. Um, you know, let, let me just, just go back a little bit. So so how did the uh, the idea to actually start a publication came come into your mind at the age of, well, well what, 15 or something, right? Or uh, Yeah, I was very young, 1994. I was born in 77. What's the math there? Uh, seven, 17 right yeah 17 17 was really if i look back in my life 17 was the most formative year it was the year in was in which i was most politically active that back now you know now i don't believe in the good of people anymore <laughs> <laughs> back then i believed you could change the world like all 17 year olds do so i was put i was acting uh, active politically in squats and and like uh, local art projects trying to do things in southern Italy where there was nothing happening culturally speaking still to this day it's culturally dead um, and so um, at 17 I realized that the music that I cared about which was industrial electronic music was not really didn't have an audience in, in Italy and so I decided to do this fanzine I started it in 94 with the name of DLK uh, the the letters the three letters and then um, and it was uh, I was typing it on a Commodore sixty four computer that my father <laughs> owned and I would print out the articles on dot ma- on a dot tra- dot uh, matrix uh, printer and then cut them out and glue them on top of photocopied paper so total like you know maximum rock and roll do it yourself. Uh, style, graphically speaking, that those were the fanzines back in the day, and then I would make photocopies of that. And the first edition, I remember, I made a hundred copies, and then from the second edition on, I started printing it like real in a in an offset printing center, and I made I forget how many copies, but then it eventually grew from that photocopied dot matrix printer style to a full full color uh, fifty page magazine with a CD enclosed um, <laughs> and eventually became Chain DLK because I joined forces with this guy called Maurizio Bustianaz, who was making music as Gerstein back then, still does. Uh, and he had a webzine called Chain the Door and we just joined the two names, Chain the Door with DLK and called it Chain DLK. But yeah, I mean, to answer your question more briefly, I just wanted to give an audience to that genre in a place where that genre was underrepresented in my opinion. And so that's, that's why I created it. 
How did you distribute the, the copies of the fanzine? Oh, that's a good question. Well, back then, uh, there was a big underground scene uh, made out of distributors, record labels, fanzine, do-it-yourself fanzine makers. All of these, it's, it's hard to explain these days because in the pre-internet era, this all happened in person with mail and with concerts. So what would happen back then is you would go to a concert in the 90s and at where na today would be the merch table for for the t-shirts and the CDs of the band. Back then, there were merch tables of multiple distributors and multiple fanzine makers, etc. that would set out their stuff. And then most importantly, and here's the key, they would trade with each other. So I would give five copies of my magazine to another fanzine maker And then I would do my own little merch table where I'd sell my magazine and the other and the copies that I've gotten from that other person. And this this network was at the very least nationwide, but it was really worldwide. So I, I remember it's funny note, for example, I'm sure most of your podcast uh, listeners have heard of the great magazine called Tape Op, which is uh, Larry Crane and John Bacigalupi make out in Portland. Uh, great, one of my favorite. Well, I actually got in touch with those guys back then. And at the time they were also within this network of fanzines and we were exchanging copies where I would send them five copies to Portland and they would send me five copies to Italy. So I have the very first numbers of Tape Op, which you know now is a real you know, full-blown magazine. Back then was a, a smaller, version it was not color you know so we're you know we came from the ba same beginnings and that kind of network existed pre-internet and was how you distributed we spent so much money on mail and postage like more money than printing the actual magazine probably yeah for sure for sure how are your your ties currently to to italy and like do you still um What kind of status do you have in Italy? Do you even know? Like, do people uh, remember you? Do they uh, admire you? Like, I mean, it, I mean, there, there. Obviously, I have friends from that era. Uh, some of them have continued making music. Uh, very few have made it. I, I, my best friend from childhood is actually the most is now the most prominent uh, guitar player in Italy. He is the Uh, arranger, producer, and guitar player for the biggest rock star in Italy. Uh, the name the name of the rock star is Vasco Rossi. My friend's name is Vince Pastano. And Vince and I actually made a record together called Pass the Mark. Came out on a label called uh, New Jazz a few years back, maybe 10 years ago. Uh, it's an electronic plus guitar record. Um, but, uh, you know, obviously the people of my generation remember me because we were friends. We were in the same concert scene. Um, th there's a new generation of people that know me as the, as an engineer. And it's funny, I get sometimes, I just yesterday got an email from somebody from Italy, actually from Puglia, which is the heel of the boot where I grew up, writing me in English and asking me to mix their record. So clearly they have no idea that, I, that, I'm, that I'm from there or have lived there. So, you know, it's a mixed bag now of people that know me from back then, 
people that have heard my name after uh, unrelatedly. Um, it's, you know, it's a big world now joined by a big network. So it's easy to find people and reach out to people. And I'm very approachable. Anyone can and should email me on my website and I answer everyone within 24 to 48 hours. But to answer your question, my ties with Italy are musically speaking, not very strong in the sense that I have not kept tabs on the scene in Italy. I'm kind of uninterested with uh, Italian, mainstream Italian music is terrible just like mainstream American music. Um, there are, of course, exceptions and great bands that come from Italy. But except for a few names here and there that I keep tabs on, I don't really follow the scene. Uh, I have some musician friends that are amazing, like Vincenzo Vasi or Enrico Gabrielli, who funnily enough, I met, I met through Mike Patton and his band Mondo Cane, because I'm the mixing engineer, front house mixing engineer for Mondo Cane, which is Mike Patton's band that plays old Italian music from the 50s and the 60s. And that band has um, 12 uh, members, out of which eight or nine are Italian. So it's funny that through Mike Patton, I actually met these Italian people that I otherwise wouldn't have met, which are incredible musicians. Uh, Enri Zavalloni is another one, keyboard player. So these people I, I'm friends with now and I keep tabs on their projects. But short of that, I don't really look at Italy as a place of work. Of course, if somebody does reach out to me, I work with the Italians. But otherwise, my, my, uh, you know, my reach is mostly American and British because I live. I mean, I yeah. work with people from all over the world, but I live between New York and London. So, so let me ask you something uh, like... Um there there are many italian families in new york city right like there's a whole um community italian community most of uh, which are kind of like i think i guess generations removed from being real italians right so in the yeah, sense absolutely. of in the sense of speaking the language right so but did you have any any uh, contact with with new yorker italians that are um Is there, has there any been? No. No, zero. I, I actually, I made it, a, I specifically made it a point when I moved to the U.S. to not make any Italian friends. And I, I for different reasons, the, pri the primary reason is that I wanted to le learn English. And I knew that if I stuck with the Italians, I would keep speaking Italian and not learn the language. But I also don't really like the you know, the, the, your average typical Italian-American that you're describing. They're <laughs> well, so far <laughs> removed from what Italy is. They don't know the real Italy. They have this image of Italy, which is from the 1950s, and they think that's the, you know, the people that call mozzarella moots. It's just not, you know, it's we're <laughs> from different worlds. We're from different eras. And so I don't really have much in common with them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not to say that they, they can't be nice people, but they, they have—they just have a distorted vision of Italy, which is completely unrealistic. Oh, I, I was just curious, and it's actually funny that you actually gave a gave a good response here. Like, <laughs> uh, so, but uh, I remember, like, when when we first met, you were still, uh, you know, also using your second second last name, which, um, yeah, which, which do you remember when you dropped it? When I don't remember that? when I dropped it. It was just long and comp. I was basically using my mother's last name. And I think at the time it was just, it's, that's like nobody's ever brought that up with me. 
That's a good. You're you're like a psychologist poking at my at my past. <laughs> I think I think it was partly my refusal of Italy. I've I've had a bit of a of a you know what's the word uh, an abrasive relationship with Italy because living in Italy has made me resentful of Italy because Southern Italy is was such a hard place to assert yourself or to find yourself. It's a place that it suffocates any creativity. It's a place that I absolutely despise as a place to live in. I love it now. I love going there on vacation. Uh, I even own my little place so I can go in the summer and I love the food and the people are beautiful and the beaches, all of that is great, but I would never, ever, ever want to live there. It's just, it's just, it's the death of creativity. It's the death of ambition. People there are, are, you know, have given up on life and have, and, you know, of course, with the, with some exceptions, most people just don't, are not ambitious. And that has always been the case and made me resentful towards Italy, which is why I was using uh, my father and my mother's last name together to assert myself as somebody that was more international than you know the Italian person living there, um, and I also you know I was also I was always like you know more interested in what was going on beyond the borders of Italy, and I wanted to keep my connection with Switzerland, with Central Europe, which is where I grew up as as a kid, so that's why I was using it, and then I think it just became complicated to use two last names, and I just dropped it at some point, but I don't remember when. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I do have to ask this. So you said that, like, um, in Italy, like, there is, like, the, the, the how did you say, death of creativity. Uh, you used many different words to, like, very strongly describe what what you think is happening there. And I, 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 I believe you, okay? But how is that being accomplished? How has that, how has that kind of uh, stance towards creativity uh found its way into the into the Italian culture because I you know like like my you know if you want to know like what my observations are about Italian musicians for example right like you know it you could say like you do you know when you want to find the best guitarist in the world let's say the best blues guitarist or the best jazz guitarist like I say best in inverted brackets here right or uh, the 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 best equipped studio in the world like you can say like with like a 99% chance you can find it in italy you can find that guy who knows how to play blues like just like anybody else in italy what i mean by that is that there seems this and th this maybe maybe even like to what you were saying there seems to be this that a lot of like the um, indiv the uh, individual italian soul seems to not even be taken seriously and like people always look beyond, like you were saying, maybe actually look, looking like, how can I be as good as this guy who is far away? And then there is, there's like kind of like the motivation and the energy to actually practice a lot and to, you know, to do a lot to actually get there. And this is something that I've always found like really fascinating about Italians because they can, they can be extremely, extremely dedicated and extremely, uh, um, positively busy, yeah, I find. But then, but then the artistic, the let's let's say the artistic soul is kind of like non-existent. 
quite often. Uh, I mean, I have to respectfully disagree with Good. you. Good. I, I, I don't really, if I were looking for the best blues guitar player or jazz guitar player, I would not look in Italy. But you know, um, that's, that's why I use the inverted commas. Yeah. No, I mean, I would, you know, first of all, it's, it's like looking for the best sushi restaurant in Italy. It just, you know, the best sushi restaurants are in Japan. That's where sushi is from. Uh, there's good ones else in other places, but I'm, I wouldn't look in Italy in the same way. I would not look for, you know, music like jazz and blues, which is from America. I wouldn't start looking in for, Germany for that in Germany or in Italy. Yeah. We can talk about the best pizza and the best coffee. And that's that's you're going to find in Italy. And I actually, funnily, I have this conversation with Americans when they're like, oh, the best pizza in the world is, is here in New York. It's like, you have no idea. You've never even been to Italy. Go to Italy and then let's have that conversation. So I am all for authenticity and for re looking out for authenticity, searching out authenticity. Um, I mean, I agree that there are great musicians in Italy, but like I said, they're content. They have, they don't have ambition. They complain about Italy. They complain about how things don't work in Italy, but then they stay in Italy. And I just, I can't really comprehend that or relate to that. That's why I left, you know, in Italy, there's a, there's a, a term that they, they call it fuga dei cervelli, which means the escape of the brains which means basically if you have a brain, you're going to escape or it's, it talks, it basically refers to how people that have ambition and want to do things have to leave because you can't do them in Italy. And there's people who try to do them in Italy. There's people who are content with doing whatever they do in Italy. Uh, but there's, there's just, there isn't the same opportunity. I mean, look at me now. I'm an accomplished engineer. I work with the best of the best musicians in the world Could I have achieved that from Italy? I don't think so. You have to be in a place like New York where you can be exposed to a certain level of musicians and level of people to work to end up working with people like John Zorn and Nick Cave and you two. I don't think I would have been able to do that from Italy. Yes, there are a few exceptions that have achieved good careers in Italy, but it, it's just normal that if you're in, Ita in Italy, you're going to be limited to the Italian market and it's going to be very hard to go past the geographical borders of that. So, so am I right in assuming that you would, you would say that you like that fuga, that escape, that you were, you, you were doing that? Yeah, I was, I don't know if I was conscious at the time. I wasn't actually, because I wasn't even, I didn't even leave Italy with the intention of leaving Italy. Like I said, I went to New York to do an internship with the intention of returning to Europe. Uh, but obviously, yes, I'm part of that fuga. Mm -hmm. And uh, but it's which, the best decision I've ever made. I'll say that. Yeah. So, so while you were there in the in the basement uh, uh, with lots of water under you, <laughs> and you went you went and interned at that studio. Which studio was that? It was the same studio that I run and operate to this day. It was Eastside Sound, which is a studio that Lou Holtzman opened in 1972, the year you were born in. Uh, so as you know, it's almost 50 years old or, and, um, or actually it's 50 years old this year, uh, the studio. And it's, uh, it's a studio that was very prominent in the jazz world. So I got to record a lot of jazz, which is how I got in, plugged into the jazz scene here in New York. And I started there 
you know, pouring coffee for clients, cleaning the toilets, scrubbing the floors. Eventually, I upgraded to, you know, running cables, breaking down sessions, setting up sessions. It was a steady ascent over the course of several years. I'm now the chief engineer, uh, chief audio engineer and the manager of the studio. And I have all my gear in that studio. So now I have a Neve console, a ton of microphones, speakers, and I keep everything at that studio. Uh, and so it's my home base now. But Lou Holtzman is still the owner. Mm -hmm. You know, Mark, I, it, this is uh, this conversation is really fascinating to me because you are like on on one hand, like you're describing, and I, I and I know you personally, so I know what kind of like drive you have also to be in let's say almost like you want to be in different places at the same time right you're, you're that wish. kind of person <laughs> so so but like in your in your life there seems to be like this major event which is you leave italy and you get to get to new york and like you have this amazing stability like almost 25 years later you you're basically living the american dream in the sense you start as an intern you sleep in the on the wet floor and and you become uh the main well one of the main guys in that studio over this time and having that that stable base you're still following your dream to to um well to move around and to to like i said you're still following the opportunities that are not it's like what i'm trying to say is you have not become lazy no right? even, even well, though even even though you have like that stability Absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm not interested in complacency and I'm not interested in, in being static. I love, you know, sp variety is the spice of life. I've always said that. So for me, uh, that applies to musical genres, which is why I don't want to be pigeonholed in one genre. I work within different genres. I go to tons of different concerts and, you know, variety is the spice of life in pretty much everything. You, anyone would get bored doing the same thing forever. So why put myself in a position to do just one thing or be just in one place when I can do multiple things and be in multiple places and go to multiple concerts? Yesterday, I flew back from from uh, Europe. I landed at 2 p.m. and at 7.30, I was checking out a new opera at Park Avenue uh, Armory in New York City. Uh, you know, it's like, yes, I could have stayed home and napped and fell, fallen asleep jet lagged, but I chose to go out and experience life because that's a better way to live than being complacent in at home. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm really wondering if that, if, if your time in Italy really traumatized you quite a bit. Huh? It sounds, sounds like it. Uh, it probably right? did. Yeah. I mean, Italy, I felt <laughs> Italy to me was like a, a jail I needed to escape from. Yeah, man. Uh, sorry, sorry to hear that, man. Well, a bit, but I also, also, I didn't really know that at the time. I mean, I, I know that now that I felt like a jail. Well, I mean, I did know it when I was 16, 17. I knew I didn't, I, I felt like a fish out of water. But, you know, I had my friends and I had my network and et cetera, et cetera. But I'm just, I'm glad I escaped. I would have been miserable if I had stayed there. So I, I think like from all the, the, the great people you've met, um, like one person that stands out to me uh, historically is Lou Reed, actually, as somebody you work, you've worked with. So how, how did that come about? Or maybe even tell us more generally, like saying after you've, you've done your internship, 
kind of like what was the series of events that led to uh, you, uh, you know, meeting these, uh, you know, historically important figures? Well, every everything was was gradual. Nothing happened. You know, there was no one event that that changed everything. Uh, everything happened gradually, and it's everything happened basically through word of mouth. In the sense that I met uh, Lou Reed through Laurie Anderson, whom I saw yesterday at the opera I just mentioned, and I met Laurie Anderson through John Zorn. Uh, and if, if I think further back, as uh, I have, to, I'd have to think how I met John Zorn. I don't remember exactly, but I think I met John Zorn through Bill Laswell. Uh, so it, it's all like if you you have to, if I have to look back at the origins, it's all one thing led to another, and over the course of many years, nothing happened. You know, I didn't win the lottery uh, suddenly. You know, it's it's just been very, very, very gradual. And it's still gradual to this day. You you know every time every day you meet somebody new, which then you're in t you stay in touch with, and eventually you know ends up leading to another project down the line. But yeah, I mean the short version of Lou Reed is I met Zorn. I've been working with Zorn for almost 15 years by now. I've recorded over 120 records of John Zorn's music, um, which I think is a Guinness World of Book rec <laughs> of Records. Right there, uh, and then someday Zorn introduced me to Laurie because Laurie was looking for an audio engineer for her tour. That was at the time of Homeland, I think, two thousand eight. So I went on tour with Laurie, and then on tour with Laurie, I met Lou, who used to sit right next to me at fr the first gig I did with Laurie. Lou sat right next to me at front of house, and everyone was afraid for me because I thought he, they thought would yell at me but instead he was extremely pleased and impressed with the mix and so he kind of stole me away from Laurie um, I finished the tour with Laurie and then Lou hired me for his tour and and I worked with him for the last seven years of his life yeah the, you know what you just said that everything is kind of like comes together gradually that is really a very big uh like for me, it was, it, it, I think it always was obvious, but that's how life works and how careers work. Um, but then, you know, like, like some people have this idea that you do win the lottery, right? That there is like this, this overnight, um, no, <laughs> no, no, nothing is overnight. Absolutely not. I mean, the only, the only big thing that happened in, in my life from a musical standpoint was uh, winning the Grammy Awards in 2005 for the Les Paul record. That was that was one event that was like major and that in a way changed things, but it didn't change. It's not like the next day the phone started ringing. I mean, the next day, everything was just the day before I won those Grammys. The only difference is that when the phone rang, I could say that I won those Grammys and that would instill confidence in people knowing that they were in the hands of somebody capable. So the, the Grammy Awards didn't necessarily bring more business. They just, um, they just let people know that they were in good hands. Yes. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it's just a business card in a sense. It's, wow. 2005. I still remember when you, when you got that one. Yeah. That was that. a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. 
So let's let's just say, like, in terms of your um, your work, your technical work as an engineer. Mm -hmm. um, or maybe we can we can kind of like draw this together a little bit. How do you see the development of your way of working uh, over the years? Have you have you like always like from the initial days with that desk at your parents' house? Um, how has your approach or even how has your listening changed over the years? I mean, from a technical point, of course, it changed enormously, especially because I started with tape, tape machines, my first uh, multi-track My very first experiments were with two cassette uh, players. So I would literally like the Beatles started. I would record onto one cassette, then I would play that cassette into a mixer, play an instrument on top of that, take the output of the mixer, go to another cassette player. That's how I did my first overdubs. Then I was like, this is stupid. I, why use three machines when I can use one? So I bought a Fostex X26, which was a four-track uh, multi-track recorder on cassette tapes, little cassette tapes. So I experimented with that. And then when I opened the studio, I went to a, a different format. It was an Akai format that recorded um, 16 tracks, well, 14 tracks actually, uh, because two were control tracks. One was a Sinti track uh, on like these things that looked like VHS tapes, but they were not VHS. Uh, and then from there I went to, you know, uh, real to real, uh, Fostex. No, uh, I forget, I think Fostex. Anyway, a reel-to-reel -reel machine was my first 16-track uh, tape uh, recorder. So obviously, once I went to New York and I saw Pro Tools, my mind blown was blown. I, I remember the first time I was, <clears throat> excuse me, the first time I was in a session at Eastside Sound watching the engineer, Lou Holtzman, punch the whole band on Pro Tools, do a punching, which... In the time of tapes, you couldn't do because you would hear, you know, you would hear the, the the music interrupt. So that that blew my mind. I was like, wow, you can with this thing, you can punch the whole band, not just you know the singer. And and I was like, okay, I gotta buy Pro Tools. So I bought Pro Tools for my studio in Italy, which I ended up never using because at the t you know I I ended up staying staying in New York. But my from a technical point point of view, of course, it changed enormously from those early days. Uh, from a listening point of view, it, it changed my way of working, uh, became more focused on get acquiring good sounds from the get-go, rather than trying to uh, change them, morph them into something better after acquisition. I would say that's the biggest change. I remember in my early days on the console in Italy, in my parents' basement, recording a band. And then I remember soloing every single instrument and EQing the shit out of it, trying to make it sound better. But I, I realized later on with time and experience that what I was doing is I was focusing on one tree of the forest rather than the forest as, as a whole. Uh, and that was an important revelation and change in approach. So now I don't do that anymore. I don't solo every single instrument trying to make it sound perfect on its own. I, I try to make that instrument work within the forest of those trees. Um, 
and I make sure that I record it properly from the beginning. Like rather than say, I don't have the, I'll fix it in the mix attitude. I'll fix it in the recording so that in the mix, I can just mix and not fix. And that, that, that's been the biggest change in my approach, I would say. Yeah, and, and that's, that's great. And that's, it's sort of like the luxury of having a, like a world, world-class room at your dis- disposal in which you can record, right? Or- Absolutely. I mean, the room is extremely important and the room makes a big difference, much bigger than people think. People don't realize because, you know, there's this assumption that you can buy a microphone and you can do a professional recording at home. But it's not true because there's still a preamp and there's still a room in which that microphone is placed and people don't understand that. Everything counts and everything is part of the equation. Yes. Yeah, and it's, you know, that kind of luxury really um, hasn't been, well, it, it is part of my life when I afford to go to a studio to work in, but like in my general <laughs> musician's life still, um, I sometimes have to work with, you know, less than ideal signals, which, um, which then leads to like, for me leads to, as you say, like fix it later kind of approach, but it's not that it's intentional, it's necessary, you know? <laughs> and, uh, like for me, um, that's why, um, I had cool edit pro in the mid nineties. I don't know if you remember that software. Yeah, was, I never used it, but I remember <laughs> the name of it. It was, it was on one of the first softwares that had it like a denoising function where you could take a noise print, you know, and then, and, and that has become sort of like, um, ever since like a lifesaver, you know, like that in my DNA, I kind of like, no, okay. If I get shitty signals, I know how to repair them. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, like, Having a studio at your disposal at such a young age, coming coming into a professional recording studio and having the opportunity to to uh, to gather all that experience in, in in that well, I know that you're also working in other studios, but like this consistency, the stability to actually work in that one environment, um, like it's no wonder like to me that you have you you have have gotten successfully a successful relatively quickly. Like if we're thinking about it, like the Les Paul record, like 2000, um, 2005. So that was only like, like three, four years after the internship, right? Yeah. Um, almost six. I went, I started my internship in 99. So it wasn't that quick, but, but you know, you could say it's quick, but that was, I think that was being in the right place at the right time and, and being able to um, to prove your your worth because when I first went to the studio, like I said, I started scrubbing toilets and and making coffee, but I showed them that I was that I knew what I was doing because I had already had a studio in Italy. Once they figured out that I was reliable and that I was consistent and good in my work, they started giving me more jobs. So when when uh, the the Les Paul uh, tribute record started being happening at Eastside Sound, I was already in a position where I was doing a lot of the sessions, uh, and so I, you know, it helped to be there. Uh, it helped to it helped for them to know that I was reliable. That's how I got hired on that project. Yeah. So um, from from your I know you've you've worked with um, some some famous producers as well, right? Um, what is 
what is like the um, what is it like to be working with a great producer as an engineer? Well, actually, the, what I learned on that very record, the Les Paul record, um, it was a formative experience. But it was it was the first time that I worked with a producer, Bob Cotarella. Um and it was the first time that I realized I had to keep my mouth shut. And even though my opinion was different than Bob's, uh, it wasn't the right place uh, or time for me to express that opinion. Um, and, you know, I made some mistakes in assuming that my opinion mattered or, or, or that they care about my opinion. So I learned that back then that when you're the engineer, you're, you're, you're hired to make sure everything is recorded properly and sounds properly and is mixed properly, but you're not hired to contribute your artistic opinion to anything. Uh, so that, that was a good learning experience from that sense. And obviously then it depends on the, uh, on the relationship you have with the, with the producer. Um, you know, in the last uh, 10 years, I worked a lot with Hal Wilner was a mentor to me. Sadly, he passed away two years of, of COVID. He was one of the early COVID victims. Um, and with Hal, I had a much more fluid um, uh, relationship and it was very, there was a lot of trust going both ways. So, you know, he would ask me, what do you think? Uh, and I would give him my opinion and, or I could say, what do you think about this? Uh, it's different, but um, you have to get there. Uh, you have to build up to that point where you can offer your opinion or a suggestion uh, so that you, it doesn't look like you're overstepping your role as an engineer in the producer versus engineer relationship. Mm -hmm. So how are you dealing with like having a, an initial session with a new producer, say where you really don't know what the tastes are, what kind of microphones they want to use. Like, how do you how do you approach that? Are you kind of like offering the options, and or are you setting something up and then you just see how it works for them, or like, what's your approach there? I mean, I the communication is the most important thing. So when I spoke speak to an engineer, uh, I mean, sorry, to a producer, I asked them if they have any preferences or how they want to do certain things. I don't really ask him about microphones uh, because I think that's that's part of my job. And in in the same way where I shouldn't offer them artistic opinions because they're the producers, I don't think they should tell me what microphones to use because I'm Very the good. engineer. Very good. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. so I'm going to pick my own microphones. And if they have a problem with it, we can discuss and change. Uh, but uh, that's part of my job. And the more important thing is the approach to the session. Obviously, if it's the first time I'm working with somebody, I'm very respectful. Um, and I, you know, I don't say anything. I just ask them what they want to do, how they want to do it. I remember one of the early sessions with, with, um, with, uh, Hal Wilner, I, I assumed because Hal makes a lot of, it was a rock record we were doing. I assumed that Hal would want to have the drums in the live room, uh, but the assumption was wrong. So I had, I discussed that pri pr previously, I could have figured that out, but Hal was also one of those people that it was hard to get answers from before a session. He was very much, you know, um, a spur of the moment kind of guy. 
So we just moved the drums into a room, into an ISO booth, because he wanted to have all the musicians in the main room so he could sit in, in the musician in the main, main live room with the musicians. But every producer is different. So communication is key. That's how you find out what to do. This, yeah, communication is key. Was that something that you learned in the studio then? Would you say like in, in practice or was that something you were gifted with already? That kind of... I mean, like, communication is key in general in the world. Yes. It's not only about studios. Of, of course. You know, it's, it's key with every, everyone, you, you know, with your partner. If you don't talk, you know, you're going to create a weird situation where one is wondering what the other one thinks. So communication is key for everyone everywhere in the world. And I just apply the same in the studio. What's different in the studio maybe uh, is that from communication comes preparation. So if you communicate and you have a clear, uh, and you have clear information, then you can act on that information and prepare. So uh, if I know what's coming, I can prepare for that and I can you know, make sure that I'm ready for any curveball that's thrown at me with, you know, Hal Wilner, for example, there were always curveballs because Hal was such a spur of the moment guy that he would always decide to change something last minute. So if he told me we're going to do a string trio, I would set up four string microphones and four headphones and four music stands because so if he decided to add a fourth string player, I was already ready. That kind of over preparation is something that I've learned is is key in work when working with somebody you don't know or somebody that can change their mind easily or somebody that's very you know gets inspired by the moment. So that also means you're always the first in the studio and you're the the last to leave, right? Absolutely, especially in a especially when I'm working with a producer, I definitely get there early. But in general, you know, um, I mean. Now I have assistants working for me, so I can, if I'm doing a session, I just tell them what to set up and how to set it up. But I still, I'm still very precise as to what microphone, what preamp, where to place the instrument, so that when I get there, and I still get there before the artist gets there or the producer, I can just reposition the microphones the way I want them and get going. Mm -hmm. And I, I know that you're a, a big fan of recording the like a full band in the studio, right? Like a life in the studio kind of setting, right? And and with um, I, I'm just guessing here, but I, I would say I guess that in quite a few of the the albums you're making, they're pretty pretty quick, um, you know, a quick pretty quick turnaround. Like recording mix almost kind of like is happening as one. Um, yeah, as one project, right? Like there's no no separation really, and you you're very quick at turning these projects around. And like yeah, it depends. It depends on the project. I mean, the some records take a long time. The Les Paul record took five months. The the Angel Headed Hipster tribute to Mark Bolan and T Rex that I did with Hal Wilner took four years. Obviously, not continuously, but when I do a jazz record, then it's more like what you're describing. The turnaround is one or two. One, uh, two or three days, we usually do one or two days of tracking and then a, a day of mixing. For a jazz record, that's definitely possible. Um, mm -hmm. All of these records you see here uh, and and there, these are all, these white ones are all yes. 
records of a label called Nouvelle Records, which is a French and American uh, jazz label that I work with, which does high quality vinyl, analog vinyl recordings. And those were all done in, in two or three days at the most. Uh, one or two days of track. Also the Zorn records, I've done 120 records with him or more. Those were all one or two or three days. Well, you know, one or two days of tracking and one or two days of mixing at the very most. So never takes more than four days for one of those jazz records. Mm -hmm. So what, what does the, the mixing process then look like? Like say you, you, you do your best, as you say, to capture everything as perfectly um, perfectly as you can for the sound that you want. Um, what, what, you know, like, because you could, you could say that, you know, like that the recording or the, you know, running a two track from the recording session would already, could already be the record in some cases. Right. So how does, how does the, the mixing, what does it look like? Is it like the traditional way where you would then start, uh, compressing and EQing signals or like, in most cases, I guess you, you wouldn't want to touch um, the, the tracks too much, right? Or like, how, how do you Yeah, I mean, I, I do like to keep things separate. I'm not a fan of mixing while recording because I, because if you, I mean, obviously it has its advantages, but if you mix while you're recording, you're focusing uh, on the mix only to make sure you're not missing any, any detail. But you, you don't have, you, you know, you have to kind of keep a, a part of your mind available to listen to the performance. Um, so that if somebody wants to do an overdub, you know where you are in the song and you're not distracted by the fact that in that moment you're raising a guitar solo, a guitar fader because the guitar was doing something interesting, you know. So I do like to keep the separate mindsets and do it on separate days. I also think it's very important for your ears to stay fresh, uh, to be able to start a mix with fresh ears. So that's why I prefer to do it, to not start a mix while I'm recording or after I'm recording on the same day. I prefer to do it the next day. Mm -hmm. yeah, uh, that's, that's interesting. So like, this is what I would refer to as a, like a passive mix. Like, so like during the recording, you wouldn't really want to touch the faders too much because you just you just set up that one sound where you can make sure you're actually you're able to hear what the performance is like yeah exactly and, and, i want to be able to focus on the performance and obviously i'm keeping an, an eye on all the preamp levels because that's the most important thing when you record is to make sure you're not you know you're not distorting on anything because there's no way of going back with that uh and then in t I also, I'm also not a big fan of doing a lot of compression during the recording. I tend to keep it to a minimum. I don't do any EQing during recording. In my, uh, in my opinion, when you are, if you want a different EQ on something while recording, you should just change the mic or reposition the mic because you can achieve all of that with proper mic selection, proper mic positioning. Um, so once it's all recorded and it's recorded properly with the right microphones from the right distance at the right angle and the right preamp, then your mix becomes a lot easier because those decisions that you made during the tracking portion of it affect how your signals will translate in the mix. So 
Yes, I'm not doing mixing while recording, but I am doing mixing while recording because I'm making choices that affect the way the mix will be exactly. handled. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The, again, that's the luxury of of um, of being there for the whole of the process, of being uh, kind of responsible for. Yeah, I, I like to record and mix my own records. There are set, definitely records that I only mix. People send me stuff from all over the world to mix. And sometimes, very rarely, I record things that somebody else is mixing. But in general, I do prefer to record the things I'm going to mix because then I know they're recorded properly. So do, do you like, sometimes, do you like to get creative at the mixing stage? Like, and what, yes. Absolutely. I mean, I create, I love creativity, but again, communication is important. So you have to know that the artist wants you to be creative because, you know, if, if you're being creative, you're sort of acting like a producer. So you have to make sure that there isn't another producer or that either the artist or the producer wants you to come up with things that are creative because they're seen as an artistic suggestion. Um, so communication is key, but yeah, if I have free reign, I love to, I love to be creative. I mean, that's the fun part. So if there's if there's anything, say in a um, in a musical arrangement, let's say, where you where your opinion that maybe you're not you're not voicing it, you're not saying what your opinion is, but something that is not working well for you, right? And you are not in the producer seat, but also there is no real producer. So you're the mixing engineer. So would you would you take on the task to try to make that thing work? That it depends. It? it depends on the relationship I have with the artist. If I feel like the artist is somebody I can suggest something, I will ask, "Do you mind if I, you know, adjust this, or do you mind if we try this in a different way?" Are you open to hearing it this way? Communication again, it all depends on the relationship you have. Uh, you know, if I'm being sent a track by somebody famous, I'm not going to start messing with things unless they specifically say so, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's interesting because like one of the, I had a conversation with a, with a classical music producer and, uh, it was just fascinating, like like all the weight that is uh, is on his shoulders, like he's engineering and producing, right? And so, like every single decision that you make uh, from the get go, as you say, and that's kind of like your approach as well, is kind of like it's almost like a domino effect. Like if there's if there's like a wrong decision at any point, like it's uh, it can be can be quite. A problem later on you know and that's why i was i was asking like because i believe that a certain kind of producer's mind um it's, it's kind of impossible to avoid if you are if you're even if you're working as an engineer i think like that distinction i know what you're saying and you're absolutely right the, the distinction comes from the fact like how how do we communicate right and who who has which responsibility right but in a way, like we, you know, like no matter what you do, even if you're working, if you're working in a factory and you need to, <laughs> you need to do a certain task, you, you will come up with your own solution to problems. Yeah. And yeah. And, and that's, you know, that's why I, I, I think, um, especially with something as, as malleable as, as music, 
there's always like it's unavoidable that the stamp of okay marco selli recorded this or marco selli mixed this there's always going to be your perspective in those in those pieces of art right it's not that just because there's some other producer that the engineer doesn't count anymore right absolutely well i mean the engineer's um imprint is definitely you know, it's definitely important and can be heard. It, it might not be recognized, but it definitely is heard. Okay, maybe so. Let's, let's as a last um, chunk of um, things to talk about. Um, which tell me about your musical projects and what you have put out in the past twenty years or so. Yeah, I, I've not been very active, so that's going to be a short chunk. But I do have some things coming up. Uh, so I mentioned earlier in this interview about the memory lab, uh, that came out about 10 years after the band actually existed. So it came out in the early two thousands on a label called D trash, a Canadian electronic industrial label. Then there was, uh, um, Pasta Mark, which was my duo record with Vince Pastano, the famous guitar player in Italy. I mentioned that came out on new jazz Europe. Um, most recently in the last three years, I made two records with, uh, a quartet. I played bass and keys in a quartet composed by myself, uh, Jim Jarmusch, the film director who plays guitar, uh, Lee Ronaldo of Sonic Youth, also on guitar and Balash Pandi, who's a Hungarian, uh, drummer. We made two records and they came out on the Austrian label Trost. Uh, the last one just came out last May. Um, I have a lot of projects in the pipeline. Uh, some of them, I, it's be, because I'm an engineer and I work with other people, I, my stuff always gets put back on the back burner and comes out last. So it takes me a long time to finish things. But I am working on a lot of things in the background in my spare time, which unfortunately is very little or fortunately. One of the most important things uh, and that I'm most excited about will actually hopefully come out this year, depending on the vinyl manufacturing delays. Um, it's a record called Step and Doom, and it's a project I've been working on for 10 years, which basically combines doom metal musicians from Western, from the Western Hemisphere with throat singers from the Eastern hem Hemisphere. So I have throat singers from Tuva, Mongolia, and Siberia. Uh, throat singing, for those who don't know, is, is a technique of creating overtones with your vocal cords. So you sing multiple tones at one time. It's an it's a Asian, you know, uh, Far East uh, technique that, that I've always admired. I always wanted to incorporate. And I always thought it would work really great with doom metal. Very, very slow uh, sludgy metal. So I played drums and bass on this record. I wrote the tunes. I got the guitar players or musicians. There's great musicians from band, you know, prominent doom metal bands like Neurosis, uh, High on Fire, Sleep, uh, Mr. Bungle, etc., etc. There's a lot of members from those bands, and then all the best throat singers that I could find. People like Hunurtu. Uh, Alash Ensemble, like really great, fantastic uh, throat singers. Uh, I'm not going to talk about what label or what date because the label hasn't announced it yet, but I do have a label and it 
it, they're making this, we're working on this gorgeous, beautiful box set uh, that's going to have a book and a vinyl and a seven inch and a CD. And the book has photographs of two by Mongolia that are beautiful, like worthy of a national geographic spread, basically. And so it's going to be a very beautifully packaged release. And I'm very proud of that one. And if, you know, if time is on our side, it'll come out at the end of this year at some point. Wow. Wonderful. Like, I, I can't wait to hear that. Like, yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's very unique. It's really amazing. But I have all, so many other projects in the works. Like, you know, I was, I was before COVID, I was doing, starting a record with Blixa Bargeld of Einsturzen and Neubauten. We did a few sessions together. Uh, and yeah, you, you told me about that. Yeah. How is that yeah. going? Is that, do you think that will continue somehow? I mean, it's, it's been stopped. Uh, and I, I was just, as you know, I was just in Berlin for three hours, uh, yesterday and I actually texted Blixa to see if he wanted to do, if he wanted to just have a, have a coffee. But, uh, he, he said to me that he wasn't going out. I, I think he's, um, uh, you know, he's being very careful with COVID because they also have a tour coming up with the Neubauten. So, uh, you know, who knows? Um, I mean, I do want to finish it, but it's going to require me going back to Berlin and, and, and stuff. You know, there were so many things in the works. I also wanted to do something with Mark Lanigan. We talked about it and sadly he passed. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of things. I have another record that's on the back burner with Japanese musicians that I start working on, but then temporarily shelved because I wanted to finish Step and Doom. Step and Doom has taken me more than 10 years. That's how slow I've been. I'm ashamed of saying that, but that's when the first sessions happened. But then COVID helped me because once, once I was at home without sessions and without tours, I was like, this is the time to finish this record. And I really focused on on it and finally finished it. So if it wasn't for COVID, it might have taken me another five years. You know, I have to I have to laugh about Step and Doom. It's uh, <laughs> it's great because like I I have a project also with uh, with Radic of uh, Hunua Two. You know, like oh it's okay, called, it's called Step Stepscape, but Step and Doom is awesome. Such an awesome name. <laughs> I didn't know you had a project with Radic. Tell me about <laughs> yeah. that. Well, it's, it's like, it's a long story. Like, um, in like 2011, I uh, met this uh, singer, Namgar, female singer at a festival uh -huh. in Russia and, um, and made a record with her in 2012. And then we started this, we had this idea for like, a like a world music, like more of a potentially popular world music group that we put together with, uh, some, um, Siberian singers and a Russian folk singer and, um, and it was basically just like, like you could say groove based ambient scapes with, you know, the singers singing their traditional pentatonic tunes on top of the. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Sound, you know? Yeah. We, we did that a few times. We played and who, who was the, who was the Siberian artist? There's Namgar. She's from, oh, Budi she, she's, she's, she's from Buryatia. Yes. Yeah. And Tuva, Tuva is also in Siberia. So Radik is also yeah. technically from Siberia. Yeah, so right. it was it was three three singers and uh, and yeah, I mean, I, I really can't wait to hear that. That's like like the the idea to combine it with like sludgy metal uh, is such a such a wonderful idea. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they go so well together, in my opinion, and nobody's yeah. ever done it, so you know. Yeah. yeah. 
But I, you know, I'd love to hear your stuff too. I mean, I have a couple of Siberian uh, artists on on the on that record too. I'd love mm -hmm. to hear what you guys did. Yeah, well, I'll send, I'll send you a link to that. And yeah, just just one last flattering thing for you. Like uh, one of my my favorite recordings of the recent years is the one that you did for Schooley and Bill Frizzell. Oh yes, uh, that's yeah. that's a lot of people's favorite record, and I, it's one of my favorite records too. And mm -hmm. it's funny because. People compliment me so often with that record, but it was such a easy record <laughs> from a technical standpoint. I think it was three microphones. Mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that's just a testament to how less is more. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just, you know, I mean, I'm not even going to try and, and, and pat myself on the back and say I did such an awesome job. All I did is choose the three mics that I thought worked the best and mm -hmm. put them in front of those musicians and then you have these incredible musicians that's why it sounds so good because they're so amazing was uh, it was it recorded at east side yeah it was recorded at east side mm -hmm. uh many years ago mm -hmm. uh on that label that i showed you these this i can probably find it it's, yeah here it is no that's not it anyway it's one of these white ones yeah uh, because that's the format of that label mm -hmm. and yeah They make these, I'll pull one out just to show you. Um, they make these uh, white vinyls, 180 gram vinyls, and then they, they put them in these box sets. Uh, and it's a vinyl only label. So the way that it's a subscription based business model, which means that uh, now they're changing that, but back then you could only subscribe to the label and then you would get six vinyls in the course of a year, one every two months. And you could only buy the subscription to the full package for the year. Again, now that's changing. So now you can buy individual records. But at the time, you could only buy six at a time for the year. And you wouldn't even be told what you were getting. You would chart, you would kind of trust the label with the curating. One of those records was the Schoolies Verison and Bill Frizzell record. So, you know, the label knew Bill Frizzell. They didn't really know Schooley. I had worked with Schooley through Laurie Anderson many years prior, good friends with Schooley. So I suggested Schooley. The duo came out fantastic. It was one of the quietest sessions because if you know Schooley and Bill, you know that they both speak very quietly and they're very, they're very like in awe of each other. And so it was a very quiet session with a lot of awkward silences. Uh, the music did all the talking and the music was incredible, but I'm digressing. What I was trying to say is that the label had a business model where they had exclusive rights over the album for two years. And so that record was actually released uh, four or five years ago, but only on vinyl mm -hmm, yeah. and wasn't available in any other format. After those two years, then the record was released as a digital download and maybe a CD too. I forget if they printed CDs of that. So now the world is finally hearing it for, and it's a beautiful record, but yes, I mean, both of those guys are such incredible musicians. I just did a, I just hired Schooley to be a curator on a series of concerts that I did in Iceland at Sigur Ross's studio, um, which came out fantastic. Schooley did one of the concerts and that's, these concerts are slowly being released one at a time on YouTube. Um, so, If you, I don't know when you will release this podcast, but we're now uh, in March. Sometimes in the next 
one or two months, you will see Schooly uh, doing a solo concert from the Siguro studio that that I produced and engineered. Um, and I think there's even one, maybe one piece from that record. I'm 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 impressed about all the things that you do. <laughs> and hey, I just just do you remember Mo Boma? Uh, I don't think so. It's it's one of the early uh, projects that Schooly had in the really in the early '90s. Um, oh wow! Uh, you need to you need to check that out. Mo Boma, M O B O M O. Oh, at B-O-M-A. Um, no, Boma. Yeah, you know, I, thought, I thought you would know this. <laughs> it's it's very funny because, uh, no, I don't know Mo Boma. I'm looking it up on Wikipedia. It's funny because um, I first heard of Schooly through Chain DLK. Uh, he had a record on Extreme um, called, I believe, Ceremonies. If, I, if my... If, if my Mind it, yes, yeah, ceremony with an S. Uh, 1997 came out on the label Extreme, and the label Extreme at the time was sending me CDs to review. So they sent me this CD, and I was so impressed by the fact that all these electronic sounds were exclusively being made by the bass. So it's a solo bass CD, but you would think that there's a ton of other instruments and samplers and things like that, but it's all made with the bass. And that I remember blew my mind. Um, so I always remembered the name Schoolies Verison since 1997, but never had any dealings with it. Then in 2008, I met Schoolie through Laurie Anderson. We went on tour together for a year. One of those, uh, one of those two, in, during that tour, one of those concerts was in Bari in Southern Italy, which is an hour away from where my parents live, where my studio was. And so, uh, I said, I offered, I said, if you guys are into it, my mom makes a killer lasagna. Uh, and so I, I called my mom and I said, can you make lasagna for like 10 people? We're going to come over before or after the concert, I forget. And we rented a little van from the airport and we drove down an hour and a half to my parents' house. So it was uh, me, Schooly, Lou Reed, Laurie Anderson, uh, Peter Scherer, who's a at the time was the keyboard player, um, lives in Switzerland now. Uh, I forget who else was that night. There were a bunch of, of crew members, like the lighting designer. Anyway, we all went to dinner at my mom's and my parents to have these amazing lasagnas. And, and, so, and, and I picked up the magazine with the review of Schooly Sverison's record. And uh, I showed it to Lou. And I remember my English was not so great in the review because at the time I wasn't, I, I just had very basic English. But Lou was like, I remember Lou said something like, oh, no wonder Zorn likes you so much. You were doing this in 1995. It's incredible. Or it's 98, whatever it was. So, so it, was, it came full circle with Schooly from getting that ceremony CD to having Schooly over for dinner. And then we became friends through the years. We stayed in touch. He's in Iceland uh, doing lots of interesting projects. And the, this last one we just did together, like I mentioned, will come out very soon on YouTube. Wonderful. Hey, my friend, that's, uh, that was awesome. Awesome to check, uh, you know, to catch up after a couple of years. Yeah, it's been a while. It's been a minute. Last time I saw you was in Berlin, right? Yeah. 
Um, that, that was like three years ago, I guess. Oh, I, it feels longer, but I, everything. Feels I think it was. I th yeah, I think it was only three years. <laughs> <laughs> okay, my friend, this was fantastic. Like only an hour and twenty minutes, and like we covered so much. Incredible. Thank you for having me. <laughs> yes, and uh, yeah, have a have a great time back home, and uh, I'll talk to you soon. Okay, thank you, Marcus. Bye, bye, Mark. Good luck.